I'm Jonathan Goldstein, host of Wiretap. Each week you're invited to listen in on my telephone conversations, whether funny, sad, wistful, or even slightly strange. You never know just what you might hear on Wiretap. Uh, I mean, I knew you had a show. I just, I just didn't think that people actually listened to it. Howard, That's you... the breath of your genius, Jonathan. It's not just that you're funny, but you can be cripplingly, poignantly depressing. The Wiretap Archives, available on CBC Listen, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. In 1968, a group of university students contested their grades. They were all going to Sir George Williams University, what is now Concordia, in Montreal. And they were certain that their grades had nothing to do with the quality of their work, but were because of their skin color. The students were black. They filed a complaint, and the university administration ignored them. The whole incident, and what happened next, has come to be known as the Sir George Williams Affair. That same year, 3,000 kilometers away in Texas, a little girl named Rhonda Lux was born. It was hard to fit in, and as a teenager and a child, you're going to try to fit in. You know, you're going to try to be like everybody else, but... You just, you know you're different. There's something about you that's different. But I just didn't know exactly what that was. I'm A.C. Rowe, and this is The Doc Project. Okay, can you, like, how did you meet Rhonda? So I was covering the 50th anniversary of the Sir George Williams affair. So I was hanging out with a lot of people who had either been there at the time or studied the event. And that's when I wound up meeting Rhonda. This is Sherry. I'm Sherry Okeke. I work at Daybreak, the early morning show in Montreal. So you knew Rhonda's story before you spoke to her. I knew only a little bit about her story. I knew just a hint enough for me to want to talk to her. And to my amazement, uh, she just told me everything. And she just blew my mind. It's a story that crosses borders, from Texas to that Montreal classroom. Half a century of lives and history tied up in one woman's need to find out who she is and where she belongs even if what she discovers isn't that simple. I was born in San Antonio, Texas um, in 1968. I was put up for adoption uh, in a children's shelter there in San Antonio. I was adopted by a white family and raised in a white community. And I never understood why it was so important to keep my hair straight, to keep my sunscreen on me, wanted to keep my skin as white and light as possible. Uh, I would get dark, really dark skin. And you know you don't look like anybody else. You know, my mother would say, oh, that hair, you know, I can't do anything with it. Um, I never wore my hair curly or natural. It was just always 
straightened and I guess to fit in better. I didn't understand why I wasn't acceptable. I mean, why is this so important? And it was different for me than the other siblings that I was being raised with. I always thought I, I was part black. I just looked different. But I didn't have any, you know, in the town that I was raised in, we had one black family, and that was it. So I had no exposure to anybody else that was like brown. Rhonda grew up always feeling different, like an outcast, in the only family that she knew. So my adopted family life was not real good. The parents that adopted me actually divorced when I was five years old. He was an alcoholic, um, and he was physically already abusing them before they even adopted me. Um, And my mother remarried a man when I was seven. And he was extremely prejudiced. He always knew. He always knew that I was part black. He just had a feeling. And I didn't find out until after he passed away that that was actually a conversation that they would have. I asked my mom after he died. I said, I I just, I always tried to earn his love and I could never earn it. And she finally said he could never get past your skin color. And of course, then I was like, and why would you marry somebody like that? So I actually lied about my age at age 14 and got a job and started saving money. And then when I graduated high school, I moved out. Eventually, Rhonda got married and started her own family. Her first child, her son, was born in 1990. That moment was the first time Rhonda looked into the eyes of someone who looked just like her. And it got her thinking about her own birth parents. Who were they? Over the next year, she tracked down her adoption record, but it only led to more questions. It said Rhonda was French, Indian, and German, but her hair and her complexion had her convinced there was more to her story. Rhonda's birth parents were listed on the adoption record, but the idea of searching was overwhelming. It was the early 90s. Rhonda had no social media, not even email. So her search stalled for decades. Fast forward to 2017, Rhonda was 49. She had three kids, all in their 20s, and there was something new, DNA kits. And so, did my DNA, sent it in, it came back actually on my son's birthday and opened up my laptop and pulled it up and a big Africa showed up first. And of course I said to my kids, I was right. I knew it. Along with those DNA results, Rhonda got names of relatives. The names of Rhonda's birth parents didn't show up, but those of other relatives did, and she started tracking them down on social media, typing their names into Facebook, sending messages, and bit by bit, she started piecing together the puzzle. First, she found relatives from her birth mother's side of the family, who were all white. 
Rhonda discovered her birth mother had died years earlier. She also discovered that her mother had had another daughter, Rhonda's sister. In speaking with her, Rhonda learned more. The information on my adoption record was false. Found out that afterwards because I found my sister from my mom's side. And the man listed was her father, which he's white. And so we knew that that was not my father. Rhonda knew her mother was white, so her African roots must have come from her father's side. She went back to the DNA results, the names of distant relatives, and started reaching out. And before long, two breakthroughs, a specific country, Haiti, and more importantly, the name Fizeme. I figured out that I was Haitian by communicating with different family members that still live in the States. Um, And then once they saw a picture of me, they were thinking, you look like a Fizeme. One member of the Fizeme family was a man named Philippe. We just had the same characteristics, you know, the eye color, skin color. And so then I messaged him through social media. You know, I'd ask him some questions like, have you ever been in San Antonio or maybe New York? And he said, well, yes, you know, I've been in San Antonio. And I'm like, well, in 1967? Yes. And I said, well, here's the situation. My mom is a twin. And I described the way she looked. So then he started asking me questions back. Well, do you know, did she like to, you know, freaking this bar? And I'm like, well, no, I don't know. And so then he said, There were these two girls that I met, two nice blondes walking downtown San Antonio. It was just like he opened the door. He was like, I remember this day. It was a Saturday, about 3 o'clock. I met these two look-alike women. And then we became friends and things, and they took me to this big El Toro nightclub and whatever happened after. That's what I remember. And this beautiful lady. Lively, beautiful, smart. And this beautiful time we had together. I was like, wow, this really could be my dad. And so then I said, would you be willing to do your DNA? And he said, sure. And I said, well, okay, if that can relieve her, at least she will know that that one is not her dad. But in the back of my mind, I knew there was this possibility. And so um, it takes about six weeks. I was actually uh, driving to Houston and got an email and had to pull the car over on the side of the highway. And just, I started crying and had to sit there for a while and kind of pull it together and process it. And 
The nice thing is, is it was a road trip, so I had several hours to myself, and I would just say out loud, you found your dad. Oh my gosh, I found my dad, and he is totally open to me. Yeah, it's a surprise. I never would imagine that I would have a child in Texas. Like, that never crossed my mind, like, especially with her mother. And, well, I feel sorry. Maybe if she had told me, I would say, well, give it to me, I'll get her like uh, she just would be with me and that would be just fine she would just be with me but she chose the option of giving her away that's really uh, says something about the times the society it's a big scene in their system uh, to have a black lover, it's, it's sort of openly defying their society. So once I got the information that Philippe was my father, I made a birth announcement and said, congratulations, uh, it's a baby girl, 49 years old, bouncing curls, 120 pounds, and sent that to him. And so he took the birth announcement and sent it out to the rest of the family, and that's how he announced, I have another child. After I found my father, socially, I started using my father's last name, which is Fizi May, so I'm known as Rhonda Fizi May. AC here. Coming up. Rhonda learns about Philippe's past and his connection to 1960s Montreal. To see a photo of Philippe and Rhonda together at their first meeting, head to our Instagram, follow us. We are at CBC The Doc Project. From CBC Podcasts and The Fifth Estate, Brainwashed is a multi-part investigation into the CIA's experiments in mind control. From the Cold War and MKUltra to the so-called War on Terror, we learn about a psychiatrist who used his patients as human guinea pigs and what happens when the military and medicine collide. Listen to Brainwashed on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. Rhonda is constantly learning more about her father. These days, Philippe divides his time between Haiti and Montreal. But back in the 1960s, when Philippe met Rhonda's mother, he was living in the United States. 
Most of his family had fled Haiti during the Duvalier regime. Philippe later left the U.S. to avoid being drafted. Montreal became home. He got a job at a print shop, and in February 1969, he decided to also support students protesting at Sir George Williams, which is now Concordia University. His role at that time is what brought Philippe back to Montreal this year. Communicating with my dad, found out that he was taking part in this 50th anniversary of Sir George Williams' affair. The occupation of the university's computer center by black and white students, which began last night, is... It's known as the Sir George Williams Affair. Students complained that a professor was racist, and the mishandling of that complaint led to a protest that made headlines around the world. It grew to also include many Montrealers who were not students, like Philippe. He was working at the time, but he took part in the computer room occupation at Sir George Williams that lasted 13 days. It's our rampage of destruction in the new building, and it all ended up to be one of the worst confrontations in Canadian student history, and a disastrous loss for the university with its computer center badly damaged. Riot police were called in, there was a fire, and dozens of arrests. At that time, Rhonda was turning one, just beginning a life that would be marked by racism. And her father, who didn't even know he had a child, was in Montreal actively fighting racism. He was actually one of the protesters in 1969. And they've asked him to come back and, and speak and, and take part of it. Right now I'm here visiting uh, Montreal for the first time. And so it's been a real pleasure getting to see him in action. Uh, I've known that he was an activist, and this has given me an opportunity to, you know, learn more about him and his beliefs and and things that he has done in his past. We, Fizeme, are a tough strain. We are a tough strain, and uh, I am not surprised myself that I would uh, come out of Sir George's uh, incident, like. Uh, so people ask me at times, well, don't you feel bitter or not you, or this, that. No, I'm not bitter. It's part of war. I was born a soldier. I'm still a soldier. And I went to war and I lost a few bones and I got knocked a few and got knocked a few times. And life gone. He's very passionate about equality and change and just as passionate today as he was 50 years ago. He really wants to see society continue to grow and change and, and see more equality. If you are black, you better expect that you will deal with racism and rejection and, and hypocrisy. I figured that my any child that I would have in America would have trouble because they would be tainted black. People were still getting arrested for black and white marriages. So it was just like the beginning of the change. And there's a lot of children like me that were born that were mixed then what do you do with this mixed child? Rhonda says 
For most of her life, she knew no one with a background similar to hers. Through getting to know her dad and learning about his activism, Rhonda has gained a stronger sense of self. She can't help but wonder what her childhood would have been like had she known him. My life could have been very different. If I would have been raised by my father or my father's side of the family. It might have been different too had she at least known about her Haitian roots. She was about to meet someone who had all that. My name is Amilcar de la Cressonnière. I'm 44 years old. Uh, I live in Montreal. Amilcar is Rhonda's brother. They share the same father, Philippe, but have different mothers, both white. Rhonda says she's amazed when she looks at Amilcar. He looks like an older version of her son. And Rhonda says she and Amilcar are very similar, despite very different childhoods. Rhonda's experience is different than mine because I, I knew where I was from, you know what I mean? I grew up in the Myland. It's a multi multicultural uh, neighborhood in Montreal and a single mother in a household, right? But with my dad uh, present on weekends uh, for certain outings. My mom's from France. She uh, came to Canada in the 70s. She was starting in to do documentaries and uh, movies and uh, working for uh, the, the Marxist-Leninist. She had my sister and she wanted uh, another child. She met my dad and, you know, she liked him. She thought he was really good looking and she was like, well, you know, I have a children with that guy and, you know, that will be that. My dad told me, he's like, yeah, he met my mom here uh, and, uh, yeah, I guess he liked that deal, you know, sounded like a good deal to him and uh, so that's what happened. We would come on the weekends, and then we would go out and do uh, excursions. It was fun, you know. He came for the fun stuff, so he had a good uh, role to play, I guess. We'd go uh, to the pet store and terrorize the birds, uh, or we would go to uh, chocolate makers, and that's, that's the memories I have, and just sample chocolate. And uh, and then we also go to the... Um, to the Asian community, whatever events or uh, community center, and just hang out, um, or or we just uh, go to his place. But yeah, mainly we'd go out and do fun stuff. The whole time he was here, he was always thinking of going back to Haiti, and then he went back. Then it became uh, basically just me and my mom and my sister. Emil Carr remembers Philippe's departure as sudden and a shock, but he says he didn't really focus on it much at the time. I was very lucky because I came from a very multicultural, multi-ethnic neighborhood, which was the Myland. Well, uh, there was not many black people there, but, you know, there was all kinds of Europeans or Greeks and, you know, I mean, Jewish. Um, so there was different cultures at play. So that was one thing. With my mother, I was like, it never, you know, or my sister, it never was, was an issue. I mean, it didn't feel any different because I looked pretty much like my mom, you know, at the same time. 
At school was a little different, you know, at school it, was, it wasn't so much the hair, uh, it was the nose and the lips, you know, because I was going to, uh, you know, mainly uh, white school. They would call me baboon, and then they would, like, make fun of my, uh, my nose. Amilcar says as he approached his teen years, he was starting to rebel, getting into some trouble, and eventually he switched schools decided that I would change the scenery radically. It was like, you know, a school where there was like maybe 850 students and teachers, and there was like 23 white people, and I was one of them, you know? And so, you know, it was like the absolute opposite. I was seen as like not a white person at the first school, you know what I mean? And I was seen as a white person at the other school. And it's funny because uh, my nickname in high school was Milk. I was the minority, but they knew I was Asian, so they, they decided to call me Milk, and uh, it stuck. It wasn't until years later that Amilcar reconnected with his father. That's when I realized how strong genetics are, you know. Basically, like, we have the same kind of sense of humor, uh, you know, I mean, we have have the same posture, you know, we put our arms in in this particular way, you know what I mean? It's It's just crazy stuff. And then even though there is no contact, there was absolutely no contact for 23 years. Amilcar then visited Haiti and met his uncles on his father's side, who he says look just like him. I knew where I came from, you know, but I could, like, I've never really seen, like, uh, I've seen, like, some, you know, black Asians, you know, uh, but rarely I had seen, like, light, light-skinned light Asians or anything like that. So, yeah, I could not really relate to that. So in that sense, it was great because you could, I could uh, finally feel like, uh, like, you know, that sense of belonging. It was a similar feeling when Amilcar met Rhonda. She was one of us, you know, that's what I was, that's what I, I thought when I saw her. What's not to like about him? He's awesome. Physically, she had, she has something that, you know, that's like that we all have. And then, uh, and she's just a great, you know, she's a great person. And then she's very uh, warm and outgoing and she's a curious person. You know. So we hit it off right away. It is, it's a trip. It's like you go from, you know, a small family, then you add and then you, to, then you add some more. And then now it's like a really, really big family. Both Amilcar and Rhonda are now getting to know siblings they didn't grow up with. And being part of this really big family wasn't possible until Rhonda found Philippe. I feel like my parents were the beginning of, you know, free love. And I think in my life I was lucky to have met some wonderful woman and they give me beautiful child, children, and I'm grateful for all of them. I still am taking it all in. It's only been two years. So there are times I literally say out, out loud, you're Haitian, you are part black. 
but now it's a sense of heritage and like roots. I raised my children that I was the roots, they were the trunk, and their children will be our branches. And so now for all of us, we get to have a deeper roots. I no longer have to be the roots. That doc was produced by Sherry Okeke from CBC Montreal. It was edited and mixed by Allison Cook. For photos of Rhonda, Philippe, and Amilcar, head to our website, cbc.ca slash docproject. There you'll find links to more information about the Sir George Williams affair, the history and lasting impact of that protest. If you enjoyed today's episode, you may want to check out an episode we put out a few weeks ago. It's called Secrets of Stanley Park. It follows the story of a woman who finds out that her family secret is tied up in the untold history of Vancouver's Stanley Park. You can find that just a few episodes back in your podcast feed. And please take a moment to rate and review us. That's all for us this week. The Doc Project is produced by Allison Cook, Julia Poggle, and me. Althea Manassin is our digital producer. Our senior producer is Jennifer Warren. I'm AC Rowe. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.